From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, the story of a black writer who moved to Paris in the 50s and discovered French racism aimed at Algerians. Adam Schatz will explain. He wrote the introduction to the new edition of a novel called The Stone Face, written by William Gardner Smith, originally published in 1963 and now republished by New York Review Books. But first... America's longest war came to an end on Monday as the last of our troops left Afghanistan 20 years after we started fighting there with the country now in the hands of the Taliban. How much have the disasters around the Afghan pullout hurt Joe Biden and his agenda? How much will it hurt Democrats in the midterms next November? For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for the nation. We'd reached him today at home in Madison. Hi, John. Hello, John. It's good to be with you. Well, the headlines for the last week are all about Joe Biden's approval ratings taking a dive. A month ago, he was 10 points ahead at 53% approval. Now he's tied at the approval-disapproval line, equal numbers, 43% each. It's the lowest point of his presidency. The messy Afghan pullout, and especially that suicide bombing that killed 12 American Marines, have hurt him badly. At least that's what the headlines and the pundits are saying. Just some samples. Americans are losing faith in Biden. That's on CNN. The political tides are turning against Biden. That's at the Hill. Bad news for Democrats. That's CNBC. There's lots more. Uh, I wonder what you think. How much is this going to hurt the Democrats' $3.5 trillion bill that's now in the House and, we hope, headed for reconciliation? Look, the the playout of the war in Afghanistan has not been pretty. And nobody is going to suggest that it's it's something that would improve Joe Biden's image, at least in the moment. But uh, I think in the long term, it's unlikely to have a, a profound impact on the president or on uh, Democrats running for Congress. And I'll tell you why. At the end of the day, the American people really don't like this war. They want it done. Um, they're actually being reminded of late of why they want it done. Uh, because it's so much of what successive presidential administrations claimed about it has turned out to be a lie, right? The notion that somehow you can nation build or that if you stay long enough, things are going to sort out or that the Taliban is gone or that ISIS is gone. Everybody, everything's happened except, nope, it didn't happen. The fact is we've ended up after 20 years in a situation that is messy, um, and unpleasant. But I, I find it hard to imagine that in November of 2022, people are going to say, oh, uh, we've got to punish Joe Biden because the exit from a war we didn't like uh, wasn't pretty and didn't go as perfectly as some TV pundits might like. And the counsel I would give on this is that the Republicans spent immense amount of time over many years trying to turn Benghazi in Libya into a a huge political issue, something that would somehow define the politics of of successive elections. And and they were talking about a great deal 
going into 2018. And if you recall, 2018 did not see a particularly profound uh, benefit for the Republicans. So I don't think that this is necessarily going to affect the midterms. The one counsel I'd give, though, is that uh, the the way to, to deal with a, a situation like this is not to talk it to death, right? Not to, you know, you know, keep explaining away things that 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 didn't work out, didn't go as smoothly as you like. Uh, it is to continue to try and get it right as much as you can. Get people out if they need to get out. Look for diplomatic uh, solutions. And also, frankly, look for ways that you can work with this region of the world as best you can. Not necessarily, uh, you know, in a military context, but now hopefully uh, in development, human uh, aid, uh, dealing with COVID, other issues and things of that nature. That's one side of it. The other side of it is turn the volume up on the domestic agenda that you want to address. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it is essential that Biden and the Democrats put what might be referred to as wins on the board. And the way to put wins on the board uh, is to pass legislation, right? And that's to do the $3.5 trillion uh, budget plan that is also to uh, look at ways to, frankly, and I think there's no, no other way to say this, to get around the filibuster. I mean, it's, it's not just the reconciliation that produces a good budget plan. It's also, frankly, addressing the issues that uh, the filibuster has to be uh, done away with in order to address. And I'm thinking here of uh, police reform, labor law reform, uh, certainly the democracy reforms that are absolutely essential on, on so many levels. And so, I, to be honest, a more activist domestic agenda is probably the best response to any sort of hit taken as regards foreign affairs. I agree completely. Historically, it's very clear that Americans rarely vote on the basis of foreign policy issues. The only time that foreign issues really are important in elections is if lots of Americans get killed, 58,000 people in Vietnam, or if there's American hostages, you know, 52 held in Iran in 1980. If the Taliban or ISIS takes 52 American hostages and holds them from now until 2022, then we have a big problem. If that doesn't happen, if Americans are mostly preoccupied with their own lives, with their health problems, with their economic uh, issues, and as you say, Biden has a really big, good program to address those issues. So he knows this. He doesn't need you or me to tell him that Americans care more about their own lives than about what's happening in Afghanistan. But we'd like him to do a little more on this front. Yeah, that's right. And, and frankly, um, our friends in the TD punditocracy are doing everything they can uh, to get him to not focus on domestic and to keep focusing on on foreign affairs. Uh, and and they, they like that. Look, the people that have been wrong again and again and again um, want a chance to be wrong once more. <laughs> and so they're they're loving all the all these TV hits and all these chances to talk about, you know, all the problems. And look, it's not to deny that there are problems and challenges in the world. That is a reality. But it is to say that um, the, the, one of the bigger dangers for the Biden administration and for Democrats in general is to become so focused on what's being said about you on television yeah. uh, that you don't focus on making the news 
that ultimately people are going to be interested in, or at least a lot of people are going to be interested in. It's one other counsel I'd give on this too. Being frank about it, which I think Biden has been, uh, is very, very useful in the long term. Yeah. Uh, one of the forgotten kind of foreign policy intersections with domestic elections is 1962 with John Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that you know crashed right into an election cycle. It transformed an election cycle. But notably, it wasn't that destructive for the, the Democrats. Actually, in the at the end of the day, uh, Kennedy did manage a crisis uh, pretty well, not in ways that everybody was satisfied with. He was heavily criticized by Republicans. He was heavily criticized by right wingers, um, people who wanted to you know kind of ramp up the Cold War. But at the, when all was said and done, uh, the American people were like, boy, we're kind of glad that, you know, we didn't end up in a much worse situation. We thought you managed this as imperfect and difficult as it was, as well as you could. And and I think for Biden, that's an important thing to recognize. As long as he's frank about it, as long as he tries, I think there's going to be a lot of forgiveness on the part of the American people. And then, as you well suggest, uh, then it is to focus on these very fundamental domestic issues. And, and, Look, this is a very big deal because as of Labor Day, we sort of start to get back into the core of governance. Congress comes back to Washington, not quickly, by the way. They, they take a really long break. They make the French look like, uh, you know, kind of casual vacationers. But uh, Congress will come back into, into session. And at that point, there are going to be a lot of core questions. Let me pose some of this for you, which is we've talked many times before about what is in the $3.5 trillion bill, how important it is that Medicare be expanded to cover dental, vision, and hearing, quality early childhood education, free community college, action on climate change. But before they left, there was this group of 10 conservative Democrats in the House that were throwing up some obstacles that Nancy Pelosi did manage to negotiate with them about. What is the problem with these 10 Democrats uh, and what's going to happen when they come back? Well, they're, they're an ongoing problem. Uh, look, it, it, I, I think there's a, a very good way to uh, sort it out, and that is to to stop using the kind of standard pun term for them, which is centrists, right, or, or moderates. And he used the real term, which is corporate. Uh, these tend to be, not all of them, but most of them tend to be people who are really, really, you know, more in the old Democratic Leadership Council, corporate friendly wing of the Democratic Party, a wing that has frankly uh, been much diminished, not certainly not eliminated, but much diminished by the voters. The people said, we don't really want the Democratic Party to be this. Yeah, let me just underline that. There's 10 of them. They used to have a majority. Oh, yeah. And in fact, on issues like free trade, it was uh, and and a host of economic issues, banking reform back in the Clinton days. I mean, the Democrats had a big, substantial chunk of people. They really isolated progressives and they ended up paying a, a high price for that because the American people didn't want a Democratic Party that was pro Wall Street as regards banking issues. That was pro Wall Street as regards international trade issues. That was pro Wall Street as regard trade and even labor issues. The American people want a Democratic Party that actually stands pretty much uh, for an FDR, LBJ sort of economic agenda merged with a more progressive agenda as regards social and racial justice. And um, these 10 Democrats who are, you know, come from somewhat different places and somewhat different positions 
you know, I, I think are very isolated. I think they recognize that when it came time for this vote. And Pelosi, who, whether you like her or not, uh, is a master legislative uh, manager. She's very, very good at counting the votes. So is Steny Hoyer. It's one of the reasons why they've remained in power for so very long. Um, they're good at this. Uh, and it doesn't mean that I'm always satisfied with them. I can find plenty to criticize in their failures to go to the mat on certain issues and a lot of issues I care about. But when they do go to the mat, when they say, OK, we're going to we're going to fight this, they generally get the votes. And they certainly did that this time. Now, the challenge is going to come as we get into September and September is going to be messy on a lot of levels. At the end of the day, what Pelosi bought was time for Bernie Sanders, who is really working 24-7 on this issue, uh, for Chuck Schumer, who's clearly engaged, uh, and for other Democrats to pull together a vote on reconciliation that gets Kirsten Cinema from Arizona and Joe Manchin from uh, West Virginia, but also people like uh, John Tester from Montana on board. And it's they've got a three point five trillion dollar bill. Maybe it's going to be three point two. Um, maybe it's going to be three point seven. Maybe it's going to have an extra bridge for West Virginia. Who knows? <laughs> but, you know, they Pelosi bought them the time to move that. They have to use that time. They, they cannot fool around with you know bipartisan games and, and negotiations. They've got to look for a way to pull those Democrats together, do the reconciliation uh, and get it on the on the table if you've got reconciliation in combination with the infrastructure bill you got two votes probably in late september potentially a, a huge victory for biden and the democrats if they pull it together and that by the way will be the answer to all of your questions about you know polls and things like yeah. that so the bernie who you mentioned is the chair of the Senate Budget Committee. Let's not forget that. He's one of the two or three key people in the Senate on getting this through. You've spoken to him several times recently about all this, and he told you uh, that he is not optimistic. What do you make of that? Well, he, he, I did a profile of him for the nation, and the opening line was, you know, I'm, I'm a glass half-empty half kind of guy. <laughs> um, and if you know Bernie Sanders, and, I, and I've covered him for a very long time, and you've certainly been around him a lot, John, yeah. you know that the senator is someone who, uh, you know, he's not he's not casual. He's not sort of like the, you know, Hubert Humphrey, uh, you know, slap your back. Uh, the happy warrior. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Bernie Sanders can be a grumbly warrior. Um, <laughs> but despite all this, uh, you know, the facade of, of being not optimistic, he's actually a very, very hopeful uh, political figure. And I mean, you have to be to be a democratic socialist in the United States. Um, you have to be to be a, an outsider who ran twice for president, and in both cases did had a transformative impact on the political party. And Sanders has thrown himself into the job, uh, both on the inside and the outside. It's a fascinating thing to watch. When he says he's not an optimist, uh, I, I think it's not that he's not an optimist about a particular bill. It's just that he's not going to give you some sort of happy talk about it. He'll acknowledge yeah. it's hard, yeah. but he's doing the, the difficult work. I was interviewing him uh, up in Vermont and you know, he had to take breaks from the interview to do a call with a moderate senator uh, or with an interest group or with the White House. I mean, he was you know, working it incredibly hard and, and his desk was covered with budget documents and a book by Eugene Victor Debs, I might add. Um, but uh, then after I was with him out there in short order, he 
went out to Indiana, Iowa, and Michigan, two states, uh, Indiana and Iowa, that voted for Trump to hold meetings in Republican-leaning areas wow. uh, to pitch the budget plan. And so, and, and the reason he did that is because this stuff is incredibly popular. People are going to like it if they hear about it. So he's kind of got this two-tier approach. One, working the Senate, trying to keep that coalition together, working closely with Schumer and with Biden. The two, taking it out on the road and basically uh, sending a signal to not the Republicans. The Republicans aren't going to give them an inch. This is a signal to cinema, to mansion, to others that this is such a popular thing. You can go into a Republican area and it still has appeal. So if there's one person to keep an eye on in this whole process, it is Sanders. He is clearly trying to move the ball. One last thing. Another warrior for socialism that we lost on Sunday, Ed Asner. He won more Emmys than any man on TV, and he was a political activist. Remind us about Ed Asner. That's a really interesting thing. If you read the obits of Ed Asner, you, uh, you know, in some publications, you basically got just the list of the movie roles and the TV roles, which is endless, by the way. I mean, the guy actually has films still coming out even after he's died. Uh, And he had had a a stage performance set, I think, for someplace in Iowa next month. So, I mean, this is someone who never, ever gave up on, on the craft. But many of the obits failed to mention the extent of his political activity. They may have had a one-liner here, a few lines, but one, the Associated Press referred to him as a liberal. Uh, he was a very, very proud democratic socialist. He was uh, active in the 70s with Michael Harrington's Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee. And then uh, in the 80s, when DSA was formed, Democratic Socialist America, he was right there at the start, uh, a fundraiser and activist. And it wasn't just with one group. He also was incredibly passionate about ending apartheid in South Africa, spoke out about it on, on a regular basis. And his great passion in the 80s was uh, ending the U.S. wars in Central America and, and really uh, calling Reagan out on those issues in a fundamental way. Now, that cost him politically. In fact, the Screen Actors Guild, which he headed as president for four years at the start of Reagan's presidency, uh, said that few actors in history have risked as much uh, to take stands for economic and social and racial justice. And that's absolutely true. There's very little doubt that he lost a, a high-rated TV show, Lou Grant, uh, because he was so politically outspoken and so politically active. He thought that was the case, and many other commentators did as well. Um, but he was willing to take those hits for two reasons. Number one, I think he was, he was I've interviewed him many times, I think he was competent in his craft. I think he knew he was a good actor and that he could he could find work if he needed to, even if it was on, you know, going on stage at sometimes or going different routes. But two, he felt he had a moral duty and he did. He wasn't a pompous guy. He wasn't some sort of pat himself on the back kind of guy. But he felt he had a moral duty to use the platform that he had, to use the prominence that he had to try to help the most vulnerable people uh, in America and around the world. And he did it. And I'll leave you with this. Uh, before Bernie Sanders ran for president. Uh, Before Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was born, Ed Asner was out there uh, preaching the gospel of democratic socialism and for a good deal of time was probably the most prominent democratic socialist in America. And he did not just talk about it. He walked the walk uh, on picket lines and in taking on very powerful presidents. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, John. This was great. 
It's such a pleasure to be with you, John. Now it's time to talk about a black writer who moved to Paris in the 50s and discovered French racism aimed at Algerians. Adam Schatz explains he wrote the introduction to the new edition of a novel called The Stone Face, written by William Gardner Smith and originally published in 1963. Now it's been republished by New York Review Books. Adam was the nation's literary editor. Now he's U.S. editor for the LRB, the London Review of Books. He also writes for the New York Review, the New York Times Magazine, the New Yorker, and others. He's also been a visiting professor at Bard and at NYU. We reached him today at home in Brooklyn. Adam Schatz, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me, John. Well, many famous black writers left the United States for Paris and wrote about it. James Baldwin, probably the best known today, Richard Wright, Chester Himes, William Garner Smith was another. But who was he? I'm embarrassed to say I'd never heard of him until you got the New York Review to reprint this novel. Uh, William Gardner Smith was a journalist uh, who moved to Paris in 1951 and uh, wrote for the Pittsburgh Courier, worked for Reuters, and uh, had distinguished himself in the late 40s as a, as a young novelist. He, he wrote a book for Farrar, Strauss, and Drew when he was 22 years old, just back from Germany, uh, where he had been with the armed services after the war book called Last of the Conquerors, which is a love story about a black soldier who falls for a German woman in post-Nazi Germany and experiences uh, freedom from racism in a country that has just slaughtered millions of its own citizens on racial grounds. You quote James Baldwin writing that Paris saved his life. He had left America when he was 24 in 1948. What exactly did he mean? I think what, what, what James Baldwin meant was that in Paris, uh, for the first time in his life, he could experience what it was like to be, to be free, to be free from uh, racism, to be free from the white gaze, and to just move around in the city as anyone else would. Um, this was what Richard Wright meant when he said that in one block of, in Paris, he uh, had more freedom than he did in the entire United States, whether in the segregated South um, or in the North under conditions of informal discrimination. And you know, many Black Americans had felt similarly uh, about Paris. Sidney Bechet, jo Josephine Baker, uh, there was an embrace of Black American uh, culture among uh, many French people, and particularly among French intellectuals like uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir, Chester Himes found uh, a sanctuary in, in Paris as well and, and began to publish his crime novels there. So when, when William Gardner-Smith uh, got to Paris, he became part of that circle of Black American writers, which Richard Wright was the king, around cafes like the Café de Tournon. But Gardner-Smith, like a number of younger Black writers, developed uh, a more disillusioned view of what Paris had to offer Black Americans and other people who were not white, notably uh, Algerians and other North Africans. So Gardner Smith arrived in 1951 in Paris and the Algerian Revolution began at the end of 1954. Remind us a little about the history of the Algerian Revolution and, and its supporters in Paris. 
the Algerian uh, War of Independence broke out in November of 1954, under uh, French rule, the Front de Libération Nationale, the National Liberation Front, declared its existence and carried out a series of, of attacks throughout Algeria, and the war uh, for freedom from French rule uh, began. It lasted uh, nearly eight years. It cost hundreds of thousands of lives. It resulted in the fall of the French Fourth Republic, nearly led to civil war um, inside France and ultimately uh, led to Algeria's emancipation. And how did William Gardner Smith get involved with Algerians in Paris? Uh, remarkably, uh, William Gardner Smith was very much attuned to the oppression of Algerians in Paris before the war began. He was reporting on it. He wrote about Algerian peddlers, peddlers and, and, and poor Algerians and the discrimination they faced. I'm not sure uh, when exactly he began to sympathize with the Algerian revolt, but it seems to have occurred fairly early after the war began. And in this, he differed from the other prominent black writers in Paris. There was a great deal of sympathy for the Algerian struggle among black writers, black American writers in Paris. Baldwin, Richard Wright, Chester Himes, I think all felt sympathy, if not outright support for the Algerians, but none of them uh, openly uh, declared it. And uh, the reason uh, was quite simple. There was fear of being expelled from France. So in a sense, their, their, their freedom was highly contingent. They, they had to respect that taboo. And it, William, Gar William Gardner Smith, of course, published a novel that violated that taboo two years after, but still uh, it was quite a brave act. So this is the, the biographical facts. In the novel, how does our protagonist, Simeon Brown, uh, come to engage with the Algerians? Is it pretty much autobiographical? I'm not sure how autobiographical uh, the story is, but but there are elements in Simeon Brown's history that echo um, incidents in William Gardner Smith's own life. William Gardner Smith um, grew up in in South Philadelphia. He grew up in a in a poor neighborhood um, where, by the time he was in his teens, he had suffered police brutality. And uh, he said that the reason that he left the United States was that he feared that if he stayed, he would end up killing someone. And, and that's actually repeated in Simeon Brown's own story. He, he has a, a patch on one of his eyes. He lost one eye because it was gouged in a racist attack. That's what the stone face is. The stone face is the face of, of the racist who attacked him. It's the face of, of, of inhumanity and, and hostility. So certainly Gardner Smith drew upon elements of his own biography. Simeon Brown in the novel has is, is involved with a, a young woman who is Polish, she's Jewish, she's a survivor of the camps. My sense is that she is probably inspired by a, a woman who actually uh, existed, who was a Jewish woman who had been a lover of Richard Wright, and William Gardner Smith stole her from Richard Wright. I'm fairly certain that's the woman on whom Maria is based. And kind of the, the center of the novel is this 
question that an Algerian in Paris confronts our protagonist with, how does it feel to be a white man? Tell us about how that arises. Well, you know, it's, it's not a question that, that I think uh, an Algerian in, 19, in, the, in 1961 or 1960 would have posed in quite those terms. He probably would have said, how does it feel to be a Frenchman? How does it feel to be a Westerner? But I think it works in a very evocative way. In effect, Simeon Brown is someone who is tasting freedom for the first time, but he discovers that, that there are other people in Paris who suffer the kind of discrimination and oppression that his own people do in, uh, back, in, back in the United States. And through a series of, of encounters, he becomes very shaken by the thought that the freedom that he enjoys there is what Tyler Stovall, the historian, who's also written about this book, calls white freedom. Um, it, is the, it is a freedom enjoyed by white French people and not enjoyed by people from the colonies, in this case, by, by, by Algerians. And uh, it's an Algerian um, who, after a scuffle, says to him, how does it feel to be a white man? Because the police approach them. The police uh, refer to him um, in, the in the formal vu, but to the Algerian in the, in the informal tu. And uh, they also take the Algerian away in a, in a, in a, in a police car, and uh, Simeon is, is uh, free to go. Uh, so he sees that the treatment that he experiences there is, is very different from, from that of Algerians. And the Black American writers he knows are happy to enjoy that freedom, and they don't want to put it at risk. And for him, it becomes an ethical crisis, it becomes a choice. Do I stand with the Algerians or do I stand with the French, with French whites? Eventually, of course, he uh, discovers that there are French people as well, non-Black, non-Algerian French people who are fighting for Algeria's independence, the people who were part of what were known as the porteurs de valise, the baggage carriers, people who helped the FLN. And so we meet those people as well. And we see that the solidarity that is forming um, in Paris for Algerian emancipation crosses racial lines. So when, when he finished this novel, what kind of a critical response did it get in France? Well, it got no critical response in France because it wasn't published in French. All of his other, all of William Gardner Smith's books were published in French, except for this one. And uh, the reason I, I believe is not simply that the book explores the topic of Algeria's revolt against French rule. It's also that it's the first novel that um, discussed the massacre of Algerians on October 17, 1961, when the Paris police prefect, Maurice Papon, who was later revealed to have been a war criminal um, in Bordeaux and to have overseen uh, the deportation of 1,600 Jews, presided over uh, the killings of Algerians who were thrown into the Seine, who were killed in police quarters. This was in the, in the context of, of a, of a demonstration, a peaceful demonstration organized by the FLN against a police curfew that applied exclusively uh, to Algerians. This is the first novel that breaks the taboo. Um, it was only in the 1980s that Didier Dedanks, a French crime novelist, published a novel about the mystery of what happened on the night of October 1961. So it's my sense that you, you simply could not talk about these events 
in fiction at the time. And perhaps the French also thought, who was this guy to write about October 17th? He's an American after all. And so the novel did not appear in French. There was no discussion of it. And it's only this, this October that the novel will appear for the first time in French. In contrast, in the United States, he had quite a prestigious publisher, Farrar Strauss. Uh, how did the book do here? I believe that the book received uh, respectful reviews so far as I've been able to discern. But, but Gardner Smith was never uh, a household name. My, my guess, too, is that the somewhat exotic setting and subject uh, made it seem uh, less than urgent in 1963, a year before Freedom Summer, although Simeon Brown eventually returns to the United States to fight on behalf of the people he calls America's Algerians, Black Americans, uh, fighting for their, their own freedom. Um, in many ways, um, I think the book was too prophetic of trends that would only occur later. For example, this is a book that imagines the Black American struggle for freedom in relation to the struggle for freedom on the part of colonized peoples. And in a sense, this is a book that helps give birth to the idea of the third world. But that term was really not in, in very much in currency at the time. And, and this is a, a few years before the, the Black Panthers arise and, you know, quote you know, Franz Fanon and, and talk about Black Americans as an internally colonized people. Gardner Smith was, was, um, was uh, exploring these themes years before. Getting back to real life and biography, James Baldwin returned to the United States to, to become a civil rights activist in 1957. Did William Gardner Smith do the same thing? Uh, he did not. Uh, unlike Simeon Brown, who returns to the, the, the United States uh, to fight with uh, America's Algerians, uh, Gardner Smith packed up his bags and went instead to Ghana and worked with the Nkrumah government and spent time with Maya Angelou and, and, and Malcolm X and was there until 1966 when he was forced to leave um, because of the coup against Nkrumah. William Gardner Smith um, only returned uh, once uh, to the United States um, in the late 1960s. I believe it was in uh, 1967 or 68 um, after there had been many uh, urban revolts. And he, he returned to see his mother, whom he hadn't seen in 16 or 17 years, and also to do some reporting that uh, turned into a book, Return to Black America, which uh, is a fascinating book that, in my view, also deserves to be uh, reprinted. In that book, Gardner Smith talks to uh, Black power activists. He uh, writes about uh, gangsters in Harlem, and uh, he devotes a great deal of attention to Black American youth and uh, describing qualities that he sees as historically unique. And he traces uh, the emergence of this new consciousness back to an experience that um, marked him profoundly, uh, World War II. The experience that Black American soldiers had going to other countries, helping to liberate them, and feeling free for the first time thousands of miles from home. You are responsible for getting this book back into print. Um, to sum up, I wonder if I could ask you to read that conclusion of your introduction. Smith's perspective, a radical humanism, both passionate and wise, sensitive to difference, but committed to universalism, anti-racist, but averse to tribalism, disenchanted, yet rebelliously hopeful, feels in dangerously short supply these days. 
The book is The Stone Face by William Gardner Smith. Originally published in 1963, it's out now in a new edition from New York Review Books with an introduction by Adam Schatz. Adam, thanks for talking with us today. This was great. Thanks so much, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. We'll be right back.